Welcome to the Money Mentors Podcast. My name is Nathan Lear and today, once again, I'm here with Glenn Fairburn. Uh, we are proudly brought to you by Hewison Private Wealth. Uh, Hewison Private Wealth is one of Australia's leading uh, independent wealth management firms. Uh, today, Glenn and I will have a, a discussion around property and shares. Um, we'll discuss the pros and cons and consider perhaps which one might be better than, than the other one or is there a, a clear standout? Um, so we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone to this week's podcast. Um, Nathan, when I think about classic rivalries, I suppose I've drawn to sport, you think, you know, in the cricket scene, the Ashes, Australia versus England, Collingwood Carlton in the AFL and probably the Celtics v Lakers in the NBA. But when we draw it back to, I suppose, investment in the financial world, the old property versus shares debate seems to be a pretty passionate one, doesn't it? Definitely. But And I also think that, I mean, if we consider our interactions with clients and, and what most people's views are, I mean, I think it'd be pretty fair to say that when you look at the masses that most people probably have a bias towards property. Do you think that's a fair Def- Definitely agree. Make? Do you think that's... And I think that's because most... A lot of people own own a property when less people would own shares. Yeah, I think so. But I think it's, I mean, it's probably a bit of an emotional thing as well that because people can, um, it's tangible. People can actually go and see it, touch it, um, and they can probably relate to it a lot better than perhaps shares. But but I think one of the other main reasons why people have that sort of preference or bias towards property is that they tend to take a longer-term view with property, don't they? Because it's not valued yeah. every second of the day. Like you buy a property, whether it's your house or an investment, and you tend to hang on to it for five, six, seven years. You, you, you know, you're not usually buying a property and then flipping it pretty quickly. Mm. So that they tend to not notice you know, the fluctuations in asset values, whereas with shares, you buy a share today, and because they're valued you know, between 10 and 4 each day, five days a week, you tend to notice that volatility a lot more and maybe people aren't comfortable with it. That's right. You only know what your property's worth really when you go to sell it, when there's a, a buyer for it, where shares, there's a there's buyers and sellers every pretty much every second of every day. And I know one thing we've said before and I say to people all the time is if there was a that neon sign on, on at the front of your house and it was reflecting the value every second of every day, people's mentality about property would be a lot different yeah, I think, I, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, th- there's often the view that shares are riskier than property, um, but I think risk is probably in that in that sense is probably more related to volatility as opposed to risk, isn't it? Like the yeah. fluctuation in yeah. asset value that you see constantly with shares. Which, as you were saying, if if the property was being valued at the same rate, it'd be just as volatile. It's just that usually you don't mm. know what it's worth until you go to sell it, and most people. I mean, on average, would stay in their house five, seven, if not 10 years. So they've noticed the growth in that asset over that period of time um, and haven't really been too concerned with, with the volatility in the meantime. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, ve- it's a very illiquid asset, which uh, can be a good thing, can be a bad thing, depending on your view. And do you also think that people are just more comfortable because they can see it and touch it? Yeah, look, I think that have to play a part in it. I know people often say they can they can drive by and, 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 and look at their property where if you own shares, it's effectively a piece of paper saying saying you own a percentage in, in this company. 
I mean, it's not really the same thing. You can maybe drive by the headquarters, but it's uh, it's it's a little bit different, isn't it? It's not as tangible, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think also, you know, the argument from a lot of people is that even when if there's a downturn, I mean, although a property can effectively become zero, I mean, it, it's very unlikely, isn't it? Like if you compare a company share perhaps to a property, if if a company goes, you know, completely belly up then it can be worth absolutely nothing that's right and even if you wanted to hold it forever if it's worth nothing then it's worth nothing and you can lose everything Mm. um but with property you can just continue to hang on to it hang on to it and at least it's still there it's not going to disappear like a share i suppose is it that's right you know that's why we you know generally talk about uh blue chip companies can have advantages but that's right you know speculative shares you're right they can go to they can go to zero and they, they can double in a in a day as well. So that's the that's the risk game, I guess. The volatility, isn't it? Up, up and down. But I also think that people tend to lump these assets into one segment, don't they? Like when they talk property, quite often people are focusing on residential property as opposed to you know the various types of property. They might be focusing on one particular area or city that they live in. Um, so when we're when we're looking at comparing returns, comparing results, it's quite often lumped into to the performance of the market isn't it whether it's the melbourne property market the sydney market mm. australia in total or on the share side of things is, is it the performance of the asx 200 as opposed to digging down and really looking at what's the performance of underlying assets within those markets definitely so so do you think yeah. that perhaps the the performance of the market drives people's perceptions as to what's actually happening within the specific investments that's right i think i think it's where people live and we're talking about property for a second where people live you know if you live in melbourne you've been through the last 20 years and people have that perception that you know melbourne always goes go melbourne property prices always go up because the last 20 years has been a very prosperous time for property and and we know there's there's been um a lot of headwinds behind that namely namely low interest rates high immigration um you know numerous things i guess that are supporting supporting property prices but you know if you go speak to somebody that's over in you know perth over in the last several years when the mining boom has you know been unwound or queensland um their stories could be completely different than someone in melbourne there's no doubt i think there is a big misconception with the performance of property you know how many times have you heard someone say property never goes down and i think that's more driven by it never goes down over 10 years but there has been times, it was during the GFC, the market across most capital cities in Australia fell. Um, and a little bit, like the GFC, I mean, property fell a little bit. But I think if you go back to our, our last recession in the, the early 90s, the recession we had to have, there's stories about people that did lose quite a bit of money on property, that yeah, they might have been a forced seller. Yeah, and the market went nowhere for a long, long period of time. Yeah, so a lot of people, especially of our vintage, uh, never never saw that. They were too young, basically, in the... You know, in the 80s, they might have been kids growing like we we're probably kids growing up. So, a lot of people of our vintage haven't haven't seen that. So maybe the older the older generation, the baby boom, boomers and whatnot, have have experienced that. But a lot of people in Australia haven't haven't seen it. No, no, and, and mm. I think that probably drives a lot of people's decisions. I mean, if you look at the performance of the property market in the last 10 years, and that that you know the old saying where they property prices double every 10 years. Well, if you you were in Melbourne, yeah, they have doubled on average. Um, but as you were saying, you know, the second best performance, Sydney, where it's up 80%. But in places like Hobart, they're only up 20% in 10 years. Um, and, and Perth and Adelaide and Brisbane, all below 50%. Mm. So it really depends on where you're buying that property because 
you know, the, the two outperformers being Sydney and Melbourne have probably, draw, have probably driven the overall average, haven't they? So it, it does skew the figures a little bit. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that property has been a fantastic asset over the last 10 years. But as we keep saying, I, th- I think it's important not to be too blinded by that short-term performance because 10 years, you know, is short-term in the overall scheme of things when we're looking at retirement planning and whether it's pre-retirement, post-retirement. And there's no guarantee that that past year performance will drive future performance. Yeah, that, that's right. You definitely, uh, yeah, you can't, can't rely on previous performance to, to be an indicator of what's going to go forward because that's where generally people can get themselves in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and I also think that you know, if, we, if we're talking about the perception about shares, when we're looking at, I mean, we'll, we'll focus on the Australian market for the time being because if, if we're looking at sort of what the performance of shares versus properties done in the, t- in, in the last 10 years, then there's no doubt that residential properties outperformed shares um, and, and recent statistics released by um, Russell Investments show that residential property has done around 8% for the last 10 years um, and Australian shares have done just over 4%. Um, so there is a fairly big discrepancy there um, in returns. However, you know, as, as we were saying, firstly with regards to property, that's the total market. So that's mm. not segmenting that into the various capital cities where some have done really, really well, some have done really, really bad. But you can also translate that statistic onto the share side of things because as we've spoken about a few times on our podcast the australian market so the asx 200 a big proportion of that is mining stocks and they've been a fairly big underperformer in the last 10 years um so pre and post gfc um there's has really dragged down the australian market hasn't it yes and over the last 10 years a lot of, a lot of people still recall that the uh, Australian share market is 10% lower, around roughly about 10% lower than its peak of 2007. So 6,800 points and it's now around 6,000 points. So it's still, yeah, 10% lower. Um, I, I know a lot of people think of the price. That, that, that excludes income, by the way. That's just the, the, the value of the, the index. Um, and then a lot of people would compare that to a property they might may have purchased. Let's talk about Melbourne for a second because we're in Melbourne. A property they may have purchased ten years ago. It's doubled in value. Uh, it's basically. doubled in value. So yeah. people have a, I think they have a view now that ten years is long enough. Um, shares are no good. Property is the way to go. I think that's a, a that's a generalisation, but a lot of people would think like that. I think the masses do think that way, I mean, and that's what we're obviously trying to change through this podcast. Is what quite often what you know historical returns tell you, as we were saying, may not necessarily drive future returns, and it can be the opposite as well. You know, it, it wouldn't be the first time that last year's performer is, is this year's best, or last year's worst performer is this year's best performer. Um, but also, you know, the, the question is that can or what will the performance be for the next 10 years? You know, we, mm. we, we can see what it is looking in the revision mirror. Um, but I suppose looking at the markets right now, if we're looking at equities um, and we're looking at the property market, what do we think will impact those values in the next 10 years? Um, and do we think that the trend will continue where residential property outperforms shares? That's always the, the, the hard thing to do. We've spoken about that in a previous podcast about making predictions. It's, uh, it's extremely difficult to do that, but there is other ways you can maybe try and understand the, the, the value of the asset uh, and the return characteristic that that asset might generate for you going forward. Uh, maybe we'll start with, with property. Um, obviously, rental yields can often be a good indication of that. Um, so 
if you're in um, Melbourne and Sydney, um, because because property values have have been very strong. Um, we know that rental yields are very low um, on a lot of on a, lo- a lot of properties. It could be two percent. So, you know, you're effectively buying an investment that's going to pay you an income stream of two percent. And that's where you're relying on that capital growth, isn't it? Because if you're looking at a total return, um, if if you're wanting to get anywhere near the long-term return. And if we're saying, look, residential property's done 10% per annum over the last, let's just say, 20 years, then if you're only getting 2% income, then you are relying on that capital growth, aren't you? Like the 8% yeah. capital growth. Yeah. So it, it is a stretch. I mean, that's effectively what the growth has been in a booming market. As you were saying, with, with, with the tailwinds of low interest rates, um, a fairly buoyant buyer's market, um, yeah, that's I yeah. suppose like personally that's where my concern comes is that if we're looking at what are going to be the drivers of property price values in the next say three to five years or, or what's going to be the possible headwind, then you do have to focus on the interest rate environment mm-hmm. and um, you know we're at absolute historical lows, cash rates extremely low and, and although there may not be any indication that interest rates might be rising in Australia anytime soon, we are seeing that overseas in the US Europe's, I suppose, moving to that phase eventually as well. Mm. Um, so you can't see us too far away and you just wonder whether that may put some pressure on, on property prices. You think, you think it'd have to put some kind of pressure on property prices with uh, the, the level of debt that, that you know, we have in, in, in Australia against property that you know, repayments, the serviceability of those loans um, would, would, be, would become a lot harder. Um, I Do mean, you think also, I mean, just, just getting back to... Um, breaking up property we, we've spoken about this before but there are certain segments of the market where where there are siren soundings in there like in particular the apartment market whether it's in a melbourne in a sydney in a brisbane there, there's likely to be major issues i believe in that part of the market yeah i think the first thing that comes to mind for me is just supply um potentially there's an oversupply I mean, we keep hearing in Melbourne that there's an undersupply of property, um, and uh, there's a lot of factors that go into that. I mean, immigration is a big one. We know that Melbourne and Sydney, but in particular Melbourne, is um, more people want to come here and, and live here. So that that is basically supporting um, house price house price growth because the supply hasn't been able to catch up. But you know, could there be a tipping point? We we don't know. Could immigration change? Could interest rates go up at the same time? You know, could there be a catalyst? It's, it's, it is hard to say. That, that's why we, we generally don't try and predict. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting proposition. Yeah, I, I just think, you know, very simplistically, when you're buying property, one of, one of the main drivers of that is, is obviously scarcity, you know, you, because there's no new property being created. It's, it's a finite resource. So if essentially the value in a property that you're buying is the land. The land, that's for sure. Because the building is effectively a depreciating asset that you have to maintain and, and improve. Um, so in, in look, in my view, the, the high-rise apartment market, there, there's very little value in that given that you could buy, you know, in, in a high-rise apartment, buy an apartment today, um, and then in three years' time, a brand-new building could go up right next door. So where, where is the attraction for someone to buy your apartment today in an aging building where they can buy one across the road or next door that's completely brand new. And I think that's where, as you were saying, we need to ensure that if for that market to generate the returns perhaps that investors or home buyers are hoping for, that's where you need to continue to have that strong demand. And that may be the case. 
I mean, there, there is sort of a changing, um, you know, living arrangement within Australia where people are, you know, moving into more high-rise apartments. But yeah, that, that for me, that's where the main concern would be in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think supply and demand is, is huge. I mean, that, uh, I said earlier, something is worth what someone's prepared to pay for it. And if somebody's prepared to pay you good money for that apartment, well, there's no reason that maybe you shouldn't invest in it just to play devil's advocate on that for a second. Um, I think, yeah, supply and demand definitely have a, a big play in that. The other the other point you just made then was around the perhaps the change to how people live. I mean, the days are gone of the, the full you know, quarter acre block, um, mm, living in the suburbs, white picket fence and all of that. Um, look at, I, don't, I don't, know, don't know the exact statistics, but that apartment style living in Melbourne, um, I've heard is very, very low. Um, maybe something like 10 or 20%, you know, across, across Melbourne. And if you compare that to other countries, Europe, uh, Asia, where the percentages are much, much higher, maybe up around, somewhere around that 50% mark, uh, that's where... You know, people say the the demand for that apartment style living could continue to increase. So, once again, you know, it's it's a it's hard to know how it's going to play out because there's a lot of factors at work, isn't there? Yeah, I think like anything that there's there's nothing wrong purchasing a property so long as you're in a position where you can hold it for the long term. Because yeah, as I was saying, there may be some headwinds in the short term. But that's not to say that over you know a seven to ten year period that you might still not do well out of that property, like the Australian share market in the last ten years, exactly. perhaps on capital value. It's if you look at the index, which is a an issue again that we don't like harping on. But if you look at the index, that's down. Yeah. So that's why we're going to you know, delve a bit deeper into some examples where you got you got to really look through that, don't you? Yep, definitely. And yeah. I think just in regards to performance, we tend to focus a fair bit on the short term i mean as i said 10 years is, is in a short period of time but it can be short in the overall scheme of things when we're looking at investment cycles because the longer you go out the closer the underlying performance becomes um and if you go out sort of 20 years australian shares have done you know eight and a half percent and properties done just over 10 percent. so there's, there's still a difference there but the, the gap becomes less and less and I, I suppose the important thing to bear in mind is that that 20 year period does include you know, a major correction in the share market and on the flip side, a booming property market. Yep. Um, so I suppose that, that those stats just go to show you that the underlying returns over a longer period of time are closer, I think, than what a lot of people would think. That's right. And if you go out 30, 40, 50 years, it'd probably be almost identical, wouldn't it? That annual annual performance figure would probably be around somewhere around 10% each yep, for definitely. both asset classes, wouldn't definitely. they? Yeah, I mean that's obviously a very, very long time, uh, but it's a, it's an interesting uh, concept that both both asset classes will roughly perform the same over it, a very it long time. It is a long time. time, and I think most people might be listening, thinking, "Oh well, you know, twenty years. Who's going to be invested for twenty years?" But if you look at you know whether it's your working life, investing through your superannuation fund, um, pre, but even post retirement, I mean, most people if they're retiring at sixty, sixty five, they're going to be retired for for thirty years possibly. So. Long-term performance is an important thing to look at and, and not get too carried away with you know, what an asset's done over a relatively short period of time. Mm. Definitely. But, but, but I, I, th- I suppose just one other thing, just in relation to property, I think one of the other advantages that we haven't spoken about, we're sort of looking at underlying performance, but one of the advantages that I think a lot of investors get out of property is that impact of leverage. So... Yep. 
um, you know, the impact that borrowing for investment can have in magnifying your investment returns. And we all know that historically banks have been far more comfortable lending people money to invest in property as opposed to shares. Um, so, you know, if you've got $100,000, you, you can't invest that much in, into shares. It might just be, you know, buying a $100,000 share portfolio. But if you go to the bank, that $100,000 could enable you to buy a half a million dollar investment property. Even even a million. If not more, yeah. I mean, there's obviously acquisition costs, stamp duty and whatnot, but you might even be able to get a lot more. That's you can, right. You can effectively borrow 90, 90%, I'd roughly say. Yeah, so, so if you're looking at a million dollar property and you're getting a 10% return, that's $100,000 versus a $10,000 return on your $100,000 investment through shares, even after taking into account the interest. So mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of people have seen the benefits because if an asset is doubling in value and you've got leverage, then you're, you're getting a significant benefit over a long period of time. And look, that is a key mm-hmm. benefit of property and arguably the return that you need to get from a from a from a leveraged or geared asset is potentially less than what you need to do if it was ungeared because of the magnification yeah. of the returns that you get through that borrowing within your investment. I think it's the leverage and it's also the illiquid nature of it that, that both of them work side by side. So you can obviously leverage up and and, and borrow ninety percent um, to have a big a big property purchase. And because they're illiquid, the the, the bank isn't really going to knock on your door and say, hey, this property's gone down 20%. Because they're not valuing it every day. Um, you know, put some more mar- there's a margin call, put some more margin up because they don't value it every day. But if you go and do a margin loan to buy some shares, and the most you could probably borrow against those, those shares are maybe 70%, um, if those shares fall, the bank or the lender will basically knock on your door and say, put up some more security. So, And property, that doesn't really happen, does no, it? No, no. I think, well, banks are more comfortable lending against property. As you were saying, it's not as volatile because it's not being valued um, and because it I think also because it is illiquid you're not too concerned about short-term market you know fluctuations in value so you, you tend to hold it longer whereas with shares if you're mm. borrowing against shares and you see the value fall 20 percent you're probably panicking and thinking well I've just borrowed a hundred thousand dollars it's now worth 80 I don't want that to fall to 50 because I still owe 100 I'm going to sell that now and, ca- and you know cut my losses yeah so I think it very much, you know, emotionally people are more comfortable with property as opposed to shares. That, yeah, 100% accurate that is. Mm. I was also going to say that I think, you know, on, on the on the share side of things, when people are putting together um, portfolios, I think it's important that when you're looking at shares versus property that, that you're being realistic as to what sorts of shares you're investing in. Because quite often people have a bad experience with shares. You know, they might get a hot tip off a off a friend or a colleague. Um, they 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 buy shares in that company. It goes bad, and then they're put off forever. Well, you know that that's not really investment, is it? That that's more like speculation, speculation. and gambling. Um, so so I think whichever path you go down, um, it's important to make the right investment decision and get the right advice. Do the research. You know, with whether it's shares or property. Yep. Yep, that, that's always the way to go. Um, we, we spoke a, a little bit about the uh, some of the... I don't want to harp on property, but we've kind of been focusing on property a bit more But for the time being. But we've spoken about a few of the headwinds um, of, of interest rate interest rates rising. Um, I, I think also some of the other things that, that worry me a little bit uh, are some of the... Uh, the well, the banks, they're having a bit of pressure on them from, from the regulator. So... 
basically uh, you know, their their loan growth is is capped at a, at a certain level, uh, so they can't just keep growing their loan books to ridiculous levels. Um, also, interest-only loans. Um, obviously, rates have gone up. People, most people would know that have an interest-only loan that the interest rates have gone up uh, compared to principal and interest loans. So, and a lot of people have investment properties on interest-only loans. So that's another a consideration. If your rates going up, you know your return effectively is going down. Um, and yeah, so so I just thought I'd point out a couple of other um, headwinds on top of the fact that prices potentially could be at a highish point in the cycle and also rental yields are very low. So I think, you know, I think there are a few headwinds there. Um, however, I think the tailwinds are still not, can't be ignored. And, and a couple of them in particular are the, the you know, immigration into, into Australia in particular, the Melbournes and the Sydneys. Um, and also supply, uh, well, well, you hear, it depend, depends where you are, but in particular in Melbourne, you hear that um, supply isn't there. Like there's still a lot of demand. So and, and, and until that equilibrium changes, um, maybe there... So I think it depends which side of the fence you're on, but there's Absolutely. some headwinds, but there's some tailwinds, isn't there, for property? Yeah, I think, I think the tailwinds are that if you look at Australia in general, we, we don't have um, numerous capital cities. I mean, most people live in the, in the major capital cities um, and... You know, you don't have to pick up too many papers to see the, the cry for in, in improved infrastructure and public transport efficiency and so forth. So, mm. you know, in a lot of ways, in particular in Melbourne, I mean, people are forced to live close to the CBD. Well, because try try of driving, a, driving to work if you live more than about half an hour away. Yeah, absolutely. At peak hour. So, you yeah. know, as, as far as tailwinds, there's always going to be a demand for that inner city living because one, the infrastructure is not up to scratch um, and... And that's where all the working opportunities are, aren't they? I mean, uh, until there's, I suppose, further decentralization, improved infrastructure and public transport, then there probably is going to be continued demand for good quality in a suburban property in Melbourne and Sydney and around Australia. And exactly. And and like I always say, if you take that long-term view, really, are you going to lose? If it's a good good property, you know, good land, good location, long-term view, are you going to lose money? I don't think so. Yeah, I think that, that's right. As, as we'll keep saying constantly, it's all about the long term, isn't it? Mm. Um, because I, I think we, we can talk about shares versus property and, and the pros and cons of each. But, but in the end, quality is quality, isn't it? And if you're investing longer term, you're probably going to do well out of both of those asset classes. Yep. But I think it's important not to have a bias either way, um, but understand each asset class in greater detail because in, we've been talking about property but we've really been focusing on residential property. You know, There's multiple yeah. other types of property that you can look Definitely. at and potentially missing out on because I suppose one of the things to bear in mind when you're buying a residential property is that if you want to enter that market, you do need, well now, a fairly significant amount of money to do that. So if you want that direct property investment, um, for a lot of people, they'll only be able to buy one and maybe two properties Whereas if you're putting all your money into residential, then you're potentially missing out on the office market, the industrial market, retail market, um, without even talking about other asset classes like shares, whether that be Australian or international shares. Yeah, and the different property sectors have different return characteristics. We know that, the, for example, the, the rental yields on a commercial property might be a lot stronger than a, than a residential property. And, and they've effectively performed differently um, you know, over the last... 10 years, for example, 
um, for that reason. They don't and they don't move in sync. They're not perfectly correlated. So having a, a like we always say, having a diversified portfolio of assets, if that's property, a diversification across different types of properties can can offer benefits to your portfolio. Yeah, and I think also just to expand on shares, we, we've been focusing on Australian shares, which have sort of lagged the rest of the market for the last 10 years, I suppose mainly driven by the fact that we're a very resource-driven economy and our, our share market's been reflective of the sort of underperformance in that sector. But if you look at the US and in particular, I mean, their share market's performed significantly over, you know, post-GFC, it's up over 200%. So I think, you know, once again, we have that hometown bias. We were probably focusing more heavily on what's happening locally. But once again, that diversified portfolio, whether you're looking at property, it might be residential, office, retail, but also on the share side of things, expanding your opportunity set and looking at Australian shares, but also looking at international equities as well. That's right. And and you just made the comment that uh, the international, or the, well, the US market is up over, I think, 250% from its lows of 10 years ago. And the Australian market um, is less than 100%. I think it might be 80 around there. So they've taken completely different paths. And that's why if you banked on Australian shares, you, you've potentially, uh, exclusively Australian shares, you, you've protect, potentially shot yourself in the foot there with a bit of underperformance. Mm. I suppose it really depends on how you're structuring your share portfolio, doesn't it? Because yep. if you're investing in the index, you wouldn't have done so well. But I think if if you strip out perhaps the performance of those, you know, big mining companies like your BHPs and Rios, there's been a number of individual companies that have done quite well, like your CSLs, Ramsey Healthcare. I mean, the healthcare sector's performed very strongly in Australia. Um, so we have had a number of shares that have performed really strongly, um, but it has been the, those mining stocks that have dragged the performance of the overall market. And as I was saying earlier, I think that can sway people's opinion from one asset class to the next because they're looking at the market and people keep saying, oh, it's not even where it was pre-GC, whether it's yeah. the Ordinaries or the ASX 200. Um, but as we've said numerous times, the performance of the market, in particular in Australia, I don't, I don't think is a great indication as to how mm. the asset class is performing. Definitely not. We That's one of my frustrations when people just look at the market and say, shares are no good over the last 10 years but if you if you own that that csl and you've tripled your money in the last 10 years well you're probably pretty happy aren't you definitely um so you know a csl might take a complete completely different path to a a a mining like a rio tinto a mining share um like property you might have a a good quality piece of land versus um an apartment in brisbane that's right. It's just and so they've, different. They've taken a complete different path. So it, it's hard, unfortunately. Uh, the way we're designed, we we generalize, and the way the news is set up, you're going to look at the all ordinaries index, or you're going to read an article on property prices over the last ten years. But looking at a, a broader benchmark or index can be dangerous. You need to you need to look through and understand your specific investments, and that's where if you, you know, if you have a good quality diversified portfolio, work with a a professional investment manager. Um, hopefully you do a lot better than all those headline figures. Yeah, I mean, th- that, that was the question that I was going to ask is wh- what's the take-home value? I mean, what, what are people doing? We've had a pretty broad discussion about the two asset classes, you know, looking at, I suppose, the pros and cons of each in some ways. But I think the key, the key take-home value is that both of those asset classes are so deep, aren't they? I mean, we're talking about yeah. property. You can't just categorize property as one asset. It, it is an asset class, but... Within that, there's just so many different segments, isn't there? All the different types of property, the different areas. 
Um, and and, and the, the, you know, the same is true for shares. I mean, shares, you know, there's thousands of companies listed on the uh, stock exchange that are so different and perform so differently during different cycles. So, I mean, w- what's the take-home value out of this for I think people? <clears throat> as boring as it, it sounds, and once again, we, we probably sound like a broken record, but we, we think both of them are excellent um, investments to own. Um, so, we're, we're not going to say, you know, we're, we're, only sh- we're, we're advisors, so we're only shares. You know, we, we, love, we love having a, seeing a client with a good quality diversified portfolio of shares and property because um, history tells us that they both do extremely well over longer periods of time. Well, they almost do the same, don't they? And the I think same. That's, what, yeah. that's, that's the important thing to note is that longer term, so if we're looking at beyond 20 years, and we know that's a long time, but beyond 20 years, the performance is almost identical. It's just so close. Um, and I would think that, or my advice would be that combining both of them in the end just reduces the, the risk of your portfolio and also the volatility. So if you've, you know, we, we've gone through a situation where um, properties outperformed shares in, in the last few years. Um, so if you had all your money in shares, then you would have missed out on, on the upside of, of property. But I think by blending both of them, you just get a smoother return over the long period of time. And I think a lot of the time, in particular when you're in retirement, that, that's, that sort of sleep soundly at night factor is important. So I think if, you've, if you're blending both asset classes, you'll just get less volatility and less risk within your portfolio. Definitely, and <clears throat> I think another key point is don't 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 try and over speculate. So have a good diversified portfolio and invest now. Um, people have been saying. I remember when I when we bought our property about five six years ago, people were saying it's expensive. You know, a crash is coming, and if I'd have listened to those people, I'd still be waiting on the sideline. And the same is true buy. for shares, isn't it? I mean, how, for the last couple of years, we've been hearing that the U.S. market in particular has been overvalued because they've had such a strong recovery. Um, but to date, you know, the earnings growth from shares has been, or from the companies within those indexes has been, has been quite good. The US economy is recovering and now there's discussions about tax cuts. So trying to speculate and trying to think that the market's peaked, if you thought that happened a year ago, the, that the market had peaked and you've sold out, you've missed out on some really, really good returns. So I think the key there is to remain invested but actively rebalance where you're taking profits along the way, not trying to time markets, you know, switching from one asset class to the, to the next, but stick to your strategy and then actively rebalance back to what your target asset allocation is to make sure that you're not um, increasing the risk of your portfolio, but that you're also, you know, locking in gains, but also looking for opportunities if there is a, is a correction as well, whether it's the equity market or the property market. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have been, been saying that shares are expensive, both in both in the US or globally, I should say, and, and Australia. And once again, it's a very difficult thing to try and predict. I know, I know people will look at um, you know, the price to earnings ratio or PE ratio and will say that it's above, uh, it's slightly above its uh, its longer term averages. So so property, uh, so shares are expensive. But you know, once again, um, yeah, that's speculation. Um, break, it's also break very short term as well, isn't it? Property, I mean, sorry, shares are expensive. Well, that's now, but. In ten years' yeah. time, if you bought the shares, it could today, be more but, expensive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you could think that you know, let's just, if we use a Commonwealth Bank, Bank as an example, you might look at its valuation, its earnings. You might think, oh, look, eighty dollars is pretty expensive right now. But in ten years' time, if it's one hundred and fifty dollars, will it still be expensive? 
Yeah. Like it. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that the important, you know, you got to take that longer term view. And people talk about, you know, a PE ratio, price earnings ratio of the whole market of 16, whatever it is at the moment. You know, that's only one way to measure uh, the value of a company. Uh, and what's the specific company that you're looking to buy? What are the metrics of that company? And there could be a reason for, you know, a higher PE. And maybe that's a good thing. As if its earnings are going to double, well, then that PE in a year's time might be a lot less. So That's right. I mean, the, PEs are backward looking as well. They're looking at yeah. the last year's earnings but compared to the current share price. So people do, you know, the, the, the Schiller or the, um, the forward looking PE, which is an assumption, isn't it? So yeah. once again, you know, that's an assumption of what earnings are going to be and, and you really don't know. Yeah, so uh, look, I think we've had a, a pretty strong discussion about two asset classes, you know, being shares and property. We, have, we have probably haven't given a you know, a definitive um, result as to which one's better. But I think the key thing to consider w- when you're looking at shares or properties that it's probably not either or, it's probably and, shares and property, like looking at both of them within your portfolio, but also considering other asset classes. I mean, if we, obviously, if you're looking to grow your portfolio, you do, you do need exposure to shares and property. I mean, they're probably the two only traditional assets that increase in value over a long period of time. Um, but as always, we'd strongly encourage our listeners to seek professional advice, ensure that you're constructing a portfolio that's specific to your situation so that hopefully the objective is met through the performance of your portfolio over a long period of time. Look, Once again, thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you found it informative and enjoyed it. Um, we look forward to speaking to you all next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope you that hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, now, if you do enjoy the podcast, we'd love your feedback. We'd love if you could uh, rate our podcast and subscribe. Um, also, feel free to uh, send us an email with any any topic suggestions or comments. And that email address is moneymentors at hewison dot um, Also, please check out Hewison Private Wealth website um, and also uh, and that, that web address is www.hewison.com.au please also search for Hewison Private Wealth on the various social media channels including Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next time.